Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at trinityharborchurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning and welcome. This morning we continue our trek through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And you can turn with me to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. And we're going to read through chapter 4, verse 25. Just a little tiny bit of Romans. And if you are able, uh, you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, 
who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he has been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Now, I have something to say on each of those verses as we begin to proceed. No, don't be worried, right? Now, some of you may be thinking, that was an exceptionally long passage of Scripture. It's actually important that you think about why we're doing it the way we're doing it. Um, Traditionally, you might have heard a very long sermon series on the book of Romans that took just a couple of uh, verses at a time. Well, when you think about meaning, meaning is seldom... Uh, encapsulated in a short passage of Scripture. Meaning is something that usually is bound together by a number of different paragraphs. And everything that we just read goes very tightly together. And to take a shorter snapshot would have been to diminish what we're seeking to understand Paul to be saying. And so we can be glad as we begin to consider this passage from Romans, finally we're at some encouraging news in Romans. We spent the first few weeks uh, being very convicted, or at least hopefully very convicted, because Paul has gone out of his way to spend the bulk of the beginning of his letter to the Romans to communicate one thing. You are condemned. Paul has, has, has painted this picture that where you are a Gentile who has re- understood and had a certain access to things revealed in the natural order and failed to even uphold to that standard or your own standard, or whether you're a Jew and you did have the gift of the law, the Mosaic law, but you failed to obey that law, either way, there's failure on both sides. You stand in the dock, you are convicted, you are condemned. And that's where we stand as we enter this passage of uh, beginning in Romans 3.21, where Paul begins to, uh, to answer uh, how, this, how this problem of everyone being convicted is going to be resolved. He says it very succinctly in 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I want that to stick in your mind. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. There is no exception. And as a result of that, one of the things you need to struggle with this morning is that you are inherently bad. And if you don't really grapple with that you're bad, that you have sinned, that you have fallen short of God's glory then you're never really going to grasp the gospel. Now, we'll come back around to that in a little bit. But what Paul is dealing with first, and you have to understand kind of the flow of the argument of Romans, is that this idea that everyone is condemned creates a huge problem, not just for us. It creates a huge problem for God. What is the problem for God? On the one hand, God has revealed himself to be just. He takes sin seriously, he judges it, and so he can't let people off the hook. 
You might say, why doesn't he just forgive Israel and move on? Well, what good is a just judge who simply excuses sin and evil? That doesn't make him very worthwhile as a just judge. So he can't simply excuse the sin, but at the same time, throughout the Old Testament, God has made many promises to Israel and to the world. Promises to be committed to the orphan and the widow and the oppressed. Promises to redeem Israel. Promises to bring blessing to all the nations. So if God chooses, which he has the right to do, to convict and condemn all of humanity to death, he hasn't been faithful to his promises. And that doesn't make him very much like God. It makes him like everybody I know who's not faithful to their promises. And so God is stuck in a classic Kobayashi Maru. And if you don't know what the Kobayashi Maru is, it's a Star Trek reference. And if you don't understand it, I'm sorry for you. You live a diminished life. But I'm going to increase your, the quality of life, your quality of life right now. So the Kobayashi Maru is a no-win scenario test program at Starfleet Academy that is intended to test the character of a cadet, right? Under stress because it's no win. There's a civilian vessel that's trapped in the neutral zone called the Kobayashi Maru. And the Klingons are attacking it. To enter the neutral zone is to declare war. And you're in the ship, you come upon this, and the question as a captain is, do you enter the neutral zone and try to save the Kobayashi Maru? Or do you simply leave the Kobayashi Maru to its own fate and preserve yourself, your crew, and your own ship? If you decide to enter to try to save the civilian ship, the program runs that you become, you come under attack by the Klingons and your ship is destroyed. Right? So in this scenario, you can't, if you try to save the Kobayashi Maru, you fail. And if, um, you retreat, the Kobayashi Maru is, is blown up by the Klingons. Right? A no-win scenario. Of course, James C. Kirk is the only man to have beat the Kobayashi Maru by reprogramming the simulation. Now, God is in a Kobayashi Maru. That, that is the situation that Paul is trying to deal with as he is writing the letter of Romans. One of the challenges for the Jews who are coming to faith in Christ and the Gentiles who are understanding the whole story of redemption is that God is in a no-win scenario. If he compromises on his justice, he compromises on his character, and he's not worthy of worship if he simply forgives sin and evil. But if he justly condemns the world, then he hasn't been faithful to his own promises. And so how does how is this tension going to be resolved? There's no win scenario. Now, God doesn't have to reprogram it. He's aware of there's a fail system that he's built into it. That if someone arrives and is faithful to the law and is unjustly condemned by the law, it will essentially blow up the law and extend grace to everyone else. And this is what Paul is explaining in the first or this latter part of chapter three. How does this work? How does God thread the needle? Look at verse 22. God's righteousness has been revealed through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In verses 24 and 25, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. God has been faithful to his promises in justifying his people through a gift, and he has satisfied his wrath, this sense of justice, 
by a sacrifice that acted as a propitiation, something that satisfied his wrath. That's what the word means, and that is the sacrifice of Jesus. Notice how it's put very artfully in verse 26. God, in what he has done, is both just and the justifier. Right? He's threaded the needle. He's preserved his justice, and he's been faithful to his promises by being the justifier. He's preserved his character and his faithfulness to his promises. And this this has been something that's been alluded to in the Old Testament all along. In fact, if you look at verse 24, this language of propitiation, the language Paul is using is drawn from the Old Testament. And the language it refers to the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat where God's actual presence was believed to dwell. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, a priest would go into that inner sanctum of the temple and he would splash blood on that mercy seat that God's wrath might be averted from the people. And at the same time, blood would be splashed on a goat outside of the temple and the goat would be sent away out of Israel unto destruction in the wilderness, right? The sins being sent away to be atoned for. And what Paul is saying is this picture that we have on the Day of Atonement that happened once a year for Israel has happened once for all in the death and resurrection of Jesus. In his death, the wrath of God has been satisfied and averted. But not only that, your sins have been placed on him and sent away, just like on the goat into the wilderness. And now you are redeemed. You're free. If you belong to him, if you have been united to him, by what? By faith. And so we must realize at this point two essential truths to Romans and to the gospel itself. Number one, that you are bad. And number two, that you are saved by an act of God to which you have contributed nothing. Why are these two ideas essential to the gospel? Essential to understanding what God has done for us in Jesus. Number one, that you are bad. Now, we have a tendency to buck against that. The idea that we are um, we're evil inherently. We choose things in our rebellion against God. You spend far more time, and so do I, in justifying yourself before God than you do really thinking about what we would call your depravity. That you are more committed to sin and rebellion and the things that you love and the things that serve you rather than you are committed to God. Right? How do we do that? Some of you think of yourselves as not very bad. And the reason that you do this is you measure yourself in comparison to other people who are really bad. You begin to think you might feel a little guilty. Maybe the Spirit's kind of convicting you a little bit. And you think, oh, I, I need to do business with some things. But then almost out of, out of the deepest part of your old nature, you look over at your neighbor. And you think, man, he is so much more messed up than I am. Or she is so much, she do, she's not even close to the mother I am. I can't believe how he parents his kids or what he does at work or how he looks at other women. I am really doing pretty good. And of course, in our news inundated culture, all you have to do is watch 30 minutes of the news, which is, you know, out of 30 minutes, it's 27 minutes of horrific events. And you think, wow, my family is great. My home is good. My neighborhood is good because I'm not experiencing any of these things that the world is experiencing. That is true evil. I'm pretty good. Why in the world would you look 
to a negative example by which to identify or bolster your righteousness. If you want to establish whether a dollar bill is counterfeit or not, you don't look at a counterfeit dollar bill and compare it to see it, if, whether it's, it, it bears resemblance to the real thing. You look at a true dollar bill and compare it. And that tells you whether the one you possess is counterfeit or not. So what, who is the true human being? Who embodies what it means to be human as we're created by God? Jesus does. Well, how do you fare when you start to compare yourself to Jesus? What list of accomplishments do you want to roll out, right, in comparison to Jesus to justify yourself, to make yourself out to be good in comparison to him? Right, even at the thought of that comparison, we're condemned. We feel that weight bear down upon us because Jesus is perfect and righteous, and in comparison, there's no hope. So first off, recognize that one of the things we do is say, we're not so bad when we compare ourselves to worse people. We're supposed to be comparing ourselves to Jesus, and when we make that comparison, oh, we're, ri- we're astonishingly selfish and self-oriented. Now, some of you may push back and say, well, I don't really do that. I don't compare myself to people who are bad. I spend a lot of time thinking about what I do that is really good. And I am intentionally committed to a lot of very noble acts by which I measure my righteousness before God. And say, okay, all well and good, but I might ask you, well, why do you do those things? What really motivates the good things that you are committed to? Let me give you an example. If you were to go to, say, SMU's business school, they would, just like we would as a Christian church, they would advocate that you engage in good business ethics. Now, as a Christian, we say, yes, it's important if you're in business, you should be committed to good ethics in the context of your business because that's what's glorifying to God. It's what honors Christ. It's what's good for the reputation of Jesus in the community, so on and so forth. But if you go to SMU's business school, they say the exact same thing. You should be committed to really honest and fair business practices. You should be upfront about what you charge. You shouldn't charge too much. You should never be caught defrauding someone or defrauding the government. But why do they say it? It doesn't have anything to do with God. They say it because in the long run, you will make more money as an honest business person. Eventually, if you're dishonest, it's going to catch up with you, and you will lose what you've tried to build, right? Being an ethical business person is going to yield a larger return in the long run. So you say, I'm a Christian, I'm committed to good business ethics. Well, why? Is it because you want to glorify God, or is it because you want to make more money? And here we see that we can probe the motives by which we do something on any number of levels. You may be committed to raising well-rounded kids, and is that for the glory of God? Or is it because you feel superior to those around you when your kids outperform them? You may be committed to exercise and eating right. And you do that because you want to be a steward of God's gift, and you believe your body is a gift, and you want to preserve it for as long as it can be yielded to service to God. Or you do it because people you want people to worship you. You like the way people look at you when you look a certain way. Or you feel better about yourself. You may even be immersed in something like word and prayer. And you do that because you, you've been gripped by the love of God and want to be drawn closer to relationship to Him. Or do you do, you do it? Or do you do it? 
Because you believe that you have better standing with God by virtue of checking that off. When we begin to ask these questions, you have to wrestle with the fact that our motives are incredibly mixed. If you think you engage all the good things in your life simply by virtue of glorifying God, you haven't really probed your heart. We do the right thing for the wrong reason all the time. And the Bible has a word for that. The word is sin. It's no different than doing the wrong thing. Doing the right thing for the wrong thing is pretty much the same as doing the wrong thing. So if you understand what Paul has been expressing here, you understand why he says in verse 27, where is boasting? Right? If you are tempted to believe that you think of yourself as a good person because you compare yourself to others, or you think of yourself as a good person because of what you're committed to, you aren't really understanding what Paul is saying in Romans 3, which you have been condemned. You have been convicted. You have been saved exclusively by an act of God outside of yourself, and therefore there is no boasting. There's nothing by which you can look at in your life and say, yeah, I'm going to boast on this. We boast on Christ alone. Now, this is hard for people to wrestle with, right? So what does it mean? You know, if, uh, if, I had to, if I had to number the top five reasons that I would be what we refer to as reformed, this would be one of them. Because what you have here is Paul getting at the idea that God had to come and rescue you and that you never would have turned to him unless he reached down and rescued you. And when I realize that, I realize that I contribute nothing to my salvation. He has wooed me to himself. Right? You know, it's almost, it's like I, uh, we've been, in a sinful world, we've been raised by wolves. And we think we're going to marry a wolf. And then all of a sudden, another human being shows up and woos us to himself because that's far more beautiful than we ever imagined. And that's Christ. He opens our eyes and says, no, there's something better. And this is our rescue, becoming his bride. The alternative is to say, yes, Jesus handled sin on the cross, but I kind of decided, you know, I, I came to conclude that I believe in Jesus. I decided upon Jesus. I, I exercised the right, the option he gave me, right? I exercised my option of faith, which he distributed. Now, if you think that way, begin to think for a moment, why did you exercise your option of faith when no one else did? There must be something in you that enabled you to do that when so many people choose not to. Are you smarter? Faster? Wiser? More humble? Better looking? Well, it's got to be something in you. If you are saying, I came to Jesus and decided upon him, then what in you made you decide when others don't? And then you begin to realize you must identify something, and then that becomes nothing more than really elitism. And over here, we say, you know, I don't know, except that God had grace on me. And that's the end of the story. I don't know why. But I'm going to boast solely in Christ, because I know that all of my salvation came from outside myself. And the reason that this is terrifying and must be wrestled with is if your salvation comes entirely outside of you, You owe Jesus everything. And to the degree that you hold things back, you will forever be in a place of frustration because you know that he has surrendered all to redeem you, but you are not surrendering all 
to acknowledge him as king. This is what Paul is trying to point up to us as he begins to work out this theology. But of course, in the midst of the church he's writing to, he's got uh, Jewish believers that really value their Judaism. Say, listen, God's been working in us a long time. He's given us signs and, and symbols and things to do that set us apart. And we think it's important for these other believers who are coming to believe in Jesus to do these things as well. Things like be circumcised and observe dietary restrictions. And Paul says, no, no, if you do that, if you go down that road, then your salvation is going to be by something that is outside of Jesus. When Paul uses that language of salvation by works, that's how you need to hear it. He's really referring to anything that could be pointed to in terms of salvation by Jesus. So someone might say, yes, well, I'm saved by Jesus, but I'm also saved by being Jewish, and so I have to be circumcised, which is what he takes up here in 3 and 4. And we also know from the Gospels that Jews would go out of their way to add additional laws so that they could prove their righteousness, doing and doing and doing. And the contrast that Paul's going to point up here are two roads. And the first road is this problematic road of saying, yes, my relationship with God is really bound up by something in addition to Jesus. It's bound up by something I do. It's bound up by a notion of works rather than being bound up in Jesus alone. And so Paul is going to pull a very interesting argument out of the Old Testament. Um, it really would have been interesting to be in the midst of this debate because he's going to do something with Abraham that would have really surprised a, a Jew or a Jewish believer. He pulls out this question, right? What do the scriptures say? When was Abraham circumcised? Was it before he was declared righteous or was it after he was declared righteous? And of course, if we look back at Genesis, it's before. Abraham exercises belief in God. God declares his faith or his trust in him as righteous. And he's declared righteous a couple of chapters before he gets circumcised. And so Paul says, from the beginning, righteousness has always been in conjunction, in conjunction with trust in God. Not with what you do, per se, by following a certain set of laws. And this is how righteousness came to Abraham. And it always had to be this way because it, there's one God. There's not a God of Jews and Gentiles. And if the blessing is going to go to all the nations, then, of course, uh, uh, faith, uh, righteousness must come by faith and not by something that is exclusively Jewish. And he opens up the doors. Now, to get at what Paul is saying, um, I think there's one helpful, there's one analogy that I find more helpful than anything. And it's, um, it's, the, it's the analogy of marriage, which I think is particularly helpful, uh, not least because it's biblical, right? Jesus is our groom. We, the church, are called his bride. And so in a marriage, just like what Paul is painting here, you have two roads. It says there's the road of understanding your relationship with God as being bound up in something that you do, as being something added to the promises that God has made you, beyond a there's just the relationship of trust with God himself. Or you realize that God has so radically loved you that all of your righteousness will ultimately be bound up in your trust in him. All right. Now keep that in your back pocket. Let's talk about marriage for a minute. Think about a marriage that happens between a man and a woman. 
that is characterized by this first road, the, ro- the road of works. Right? Where they enter into marriage, yes, they think they're in love with one another, but as time goes on, what characterizes their marriage? It's characterized by an economic relationship, what one does for the other. Right? In terms of um, a spouse thinks, well, yes, I'm committed to doing this for my spouse as long as my spouse does this for me. That's what I mean by an economic relationship. It's almost a barter system in the household. So how does that make a weak marriage relationship? First, you're not really committed to a person. You're committed to the arrangement. You're committed to the promises that have been made. And as long as the spouse is delivering what you want, you're willing to deliver what you've promised to give, and everything's good, but you don't really care about the person, you care about the exchange of goods. Second, when the person fails, you're off the hook, right? And you all know about this. Don't pretend you haven't done this, right? You come home and uh, your wife says, you know, you didn't mow the lawn, so I didn't think I needed to cook dinner. Or you know, vice versa, you know, you didn't do the laundry, I didn't think I needed to wash the car or to get the oil changed. Right? There's always a little bit of us that sees this, this notion of economic relationship in the context of our marriages. And we like to, to say, oh, well, if my spouse isn't doing what he or she is supposed to be doing, then why would I be expected to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing? If they decided that they get to take a little break, well, I'm going to take a little break. And in this sense we get to let ourselves off the hook based on the performance of the other person. Third, you will never radically hope in this kind of marriage. right? Because hope is generated by love and commitment. And if you're in an economic relationship, the spouse isn't really committed to you, uh, isn't really loving you. They're just committed to what they get out of you. So there's no reason to hope. The best you're ever going to get is the contract is what's been pledged. And so this leads for, gives nothing but an incredibly diminished marriage. And so what Paul is saying is, well, you know, before we get to Paul, just imagine now a marriage that's healthy. So first of all, you're not committed to what you get out of the economic relationship. You're committed to the person, right? Your love is bound up and seeing the other person become as much like Christ as they possibly can. It's not bound up in what you're get, they're doing or not doing. You're committed above and beyond what they're doing. You've committed to their good because you love them. And secondly, in the midst of that kind of commitment, when they let you down, that's something that's forgiven. It's something that's absorbed. It's something that you can express greater love in and actually allows them for greater flourishing because people, people do better when they're forgiven. Thirdly, it allows you to radically hope in the marriage. I remember one time in my marriage where I had to, I had to come home and I had to be straight with Jennifer about something. And it, it wasn't anything salacious. Don't let your mind run wild. But I had to come home and confess something to her, right? And it was hard. I was embarrassed. It was something that I shouldn't have done. And so we talked about it. But, you know, I was, I was ashamed, but I wasn't afraid. And I wasn't afraid because I knew that Jennifer would extend nothing to me but grace. 
And that's the kind of radical hope that I can have in my marriage because I know that Jennifer doesn't love me in an economic relationship. She's committed to me becoming as much like Jesus as I can so I can repent of sin and she'll extend to me the same forgiveness she's received from Christ. And in that, I can, I can radically hope that I can go home and say, I really messed up today. And she'll share in that with me rather than judging me for it. So, do you get the feel? The whole point of all of that was to get the feel of the difference between an economic relationship and a personal relationship. And Paul says in the coming of Jesus, the economic relationship, it was never intended to be economic. All right, so there's so much in this chapter. It was not intended to be economic, but the default of the old self of the Jews, which would have been the default of anyone in this broken world, was to make it economic because it seems easier and you think you get more out of it. Paul says, absolutely not. That's a horrible way to live. The law brings nothing but condemnation. It didn't function to give life. And so God has brought life in the death and resurrection of Jesus and has redeemed you and rescued you. God has approached you in radical love, right? So think about it. In terms of a healthy marriage, God has approached you and said, you know what? You've failed miserably. I still love you astonishingly and want you to be redeemed. So there's not an economic relationship. You're not offering something to God. And so in the midst of letting him down, he knows full well you're going to let him down. And there's freedom in coming to him and confessing that and repenting. When what's so often, what is your knee jerk? What's my knee jerk? Right? You sin, you feel guilty, so you do what? You think of something good to do to atone for it. We slide back into an economic relationship. Oh, man. I spoke unkindly to this person. I didn't love my spouse. I looked at something I shouldn't have. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go put in four hours work at the church. I'm going to go rake my neighbor's yard. I'm going to do something nice for my wife. Right? What are you doing? You're just creating something by which you think you can atone. You're, you're taking, you have this massive debits. You say, I'm going to take a massive credits and undo that massive debits. It's economic. Where instead, if you live in a real relationship that's characterized by faith and trust in God, that He is bringing all His promises to bear upon you in truth because He is committed to you, He loves you radically, then you hope radically. You don't have to atone for that sin because it's already been atoned for. Now you're going to want to, and you will, but you will in a correct way. Not to handle the sin yourself, but to run to Jesus and to repent to seek forgiveness. And this is why, even in, look at verse 18. Why can Abraham believe and trust in God that as an old man he will have a child? How can Abraham believe that God will raise his child once he's born and is called upon to sacrifice him from the dead? In verse 18, it tells us that Abraham hoped against hope. And that's just another way of saying Abraham hoped radically. Why? Because he was loved radically. How did he know that he was loved radically? Because he knew he was a pagan and foreign land worshiping foreign gods and God picked him and drew him to himself and promised him wild things. And God has picked you in your brokenness and sin and drawn you to yourself, to himself. He's loved you radically so that you can hope radically. So that you can hope against hope that his promises will come to bear upon you. I was reading a very interesting essay by C.S. Lewis this week. It's in his book, Christian Reflections, and he's talking about the law. But at the very end of the essay, he had this most powerful paragraph, and he said, you know, why do we find it hard 
to really trust God. And in the most unexpected of terms, he said, one of the biggest problems I think there is is in trusting God is, is not that we find it difficult, but that we really don't want to. If we begin to really believe the promises of God and trust that everything He says is going to come true is going to come true, then that means that we would radically reconstructure not sure that's a word, reconfigure our lives. It would change everything. And being afraid of that, we don't trust in a radical way. We don't hope in a radical way. We have a little bit of hope in a heaven that waits beyond death, but not a hope against hope that makes us believe that in our old age we would give birth to a son or that in being called to sacrifice him, God would raise him from the dead. Do you want to experience that kind of hope? Do you want to hope against hope and have your life ordered in that way? What a beautiful thing. What an astonishing thing. It comes in understanding that you have been radically loved and redeemed with a salvation that comes wholly outside of you. And it's that we run this morning. We hope against hope that in the brokenness of Jesus' body this morning, the shedding of His blood, Yes, all of the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for the promises that are true and to be trusted. Father, I pray that you would help us by your Spirit to wrestle with why do we struggle to trust? Is it that it's simply difficult or is it because we are desperately afraid to live out of such radical trust. That we, we, we're scared to hope that the things you promise are actually true. Father, I pray that you would descend upon us in a way that communicates your love to us, and in that love, we would hope against hope. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.